This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is The Money. Richard Aidy with you. And this week, the show is about a measure, a very big measure. It's everywhere. Policymakers use it all the time. International negotiations use it. Jayadi Ghosh is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts. People judge the progress of their economy by how much the GDP is going up or down. It's the only measure that is provided with quarterly or even monthly frequency sometimes. But across the world, it's provided quarterly. And that really means that it has an overwhelming presence in terms of the perceptions of people as well as the aspirations of policymakers. In the global rankings, the IMF, the World Bank, the Davos World Economic Forum, everybody is looking at GDP, the total GDP and the per capita GDP. In international negotiations, your GDP and everything in relation to your GDP is supposed to drive either your commitments or how successful or less successful you have been. GDP is a tool. It's good at measuring economic growth. It's much less good at other things. David Pilling is the FT's Africa editor. He's also the author of The Growth Delusion. Before the invention of GDP, which really began in the 1930s with the election of FDR in the United States, and he set about coming up with a measure because he wanted to justify spending money to get the American economy out of recession. But there was no real way of measuring the American economy, of saying what had happened to it. We knew that unemployment had gone up. We knew that the stock market was in a bad way. There were some visible signs that production had gone down. But what there wasn't was any single number that told you the economy had done this. And it took a man, Simon Kuznets, a very brilliant man, to work out and cross-reference a single measure for the economy. So in other words, to squeeze all of our human activity into a single number that said the American economy is $4 trillion and last year it was you know, $3.9 trillion, therefore it's grown by this amount. And that is what the invention of GDP enabled us to do. But it was invented at this very crucial time. First of all, it, it was a manufacturing age where services were a much, much smaller percentage of our economies. It was invented in, in recession, so it was with a particular kind of goal in mind. And then it became used in war. And Kuznets wanted to take armaments off GDP because he thought, why should we measure how many weapons we're producing, that's not doing us any good. So let's not count that. But GDP became very useful precisely in the run-up to the Second World War. And so this was sort of shot down almost immediately. And indeed, we do count armaments and we do count all sorts of things that Kuznets didn't want to count. And that persists to this day. So in Britain, we measure prostitution, heroin, crack cocaine. So the more of those activities are going on, uh, the better for our economy. Those activities add £10 billion to official British gross domestic products. But the point of sort of raising that is that anything that we do, whether it's polluting our rivers or producing things that we ought not to be producing or maybe that we could live without or destroying our natural resources in the process of producing things, all of that counts as a positive in GDP and in growth. And one of the big problems, I think, is that growth is only a measure of income. It only tells us what we produced over a particular period, say last year. But what it doesn't tell us at all is what's happened to the balance sheet of our wealth. 
So if you have an, a company, for example, you don't only look at the profits, you also look at its assets. So you look at the number of workers it has, the plant and machinery it has, because that will determine how much profit it can make in the years going forward. But when we talk about our economies, we don't look at that at all. We purely look at the profit and loss, and we might be running down our wealth in other words, our ability to produce the goods and services that we all want going forward without us ever knowing it because we don't measure that. Yeah, well, it doesn't capture a lot of things and you kind of enumerate them in the book. One of the things is it doesn't capture something as fundamental as housework. It doesn't capture uh, looking after your own child or your sister's child or your grandchildren. None of that gets captured because there's no money exchanged. Well, that's right. Basically, GDP is a measure of voluntary transactions for which money changes hands. And as you say, if you look after your grandmother at home, that doesn't count towards GDP at all. However, if you take the decision to send her away and put her in an old people's home, then hey, presto, you're doing your bit for GDP. So you can see how just in that example, how that could kind of skew almost invisibly our policies our economic standpoint, even our sort of political opinions. All tools do this a bit. That's why a man who famously only has a hammer treats every problem as a nail. One of the things that has happened over the last two decades, really, is that more and more people, including economists, have finally realised that this is a terrible indicator. So we've had many different attempts at measures. There was a very important commission set up by Nicolas Sarkozy when he was uh, the head of France, which had Joseph Stiglitz and Amartya Sen as the co-chairs. And this commission completely trashed GDP as an indicator and suggested an alternative, you know, you could call it a dashboard of, I think, 17 different indicators. The trouble with that is that it's too many indicators. Let's be honest, it's, you know, governments have got used to GDP, even though it is extremely flawed. And so it hasn't really taken off. 17 indicators is too many. One is not enough. The UN is looking for the Goldilocks number. The United Nations has actually taken this very seriously in the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres's common agenda that he brought out last year. He explicitly mentioned the need to move beyond GDP. And fortunately, the UN Statistical Division is now fully on board with this and looking for alternatives. There's even a high-level group that has been designed specifically to look at that. So the board that I'm on was also tasked with examining this problem, and we suggested five indicators. Our criteria were, first of all, that they should be relevant. They should be possible or relatively easily available and to collect. They should be universal. So it can't be that only the rich countries can provide the data. And they should be able to be compared across countries. Jayati's board, I should tell you, is the UN's high-level advisory board on economic and social affairs. Its first recommendation is about work. The first indicator we're calling the labour market indicator. And that's really only about paid work. So what that is trying to capture is the extent to which people find paid employment and how much they get paid for that. So what we have suggested is that you take the employment rate, that is the proportion of the working age population that has got paid work. It could be self-employed, it could be working for an employer, but it's paid work. 
that proportion by men and women separately multiplied by the median wage rate. So what's the median wage rate? It's the wage rate uh, below which half of the workers get a lower wage. Basically, it's not the average wage. You know, you take the total wage bill and divide it by the number of workers. Why is that better? Because, you know, often the average wage rate gets inflated by the wages at the very top. This way, you get a better sense of what's really going on in terms of the labour market and the normal person's jobs. The next recommendation is about food. So what we have suggested is to look at the proportion of the population that can afford what the FAO calls a nutritious diet. And that's quite a different thing from just looking at total food consumption. Because a nutritious diet, the FAO has been very careful. It's been looking at different countries in terms of the different socio-cultural and locational requirements. So it's not a simplistic universal measure. This, however, is a measure that captures whether or not you have got an economy that makes proper food affordable to most of your population. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a different measure to measuring poverty. And you kind of think, well, if we have a lower poverty figure, then we're all right. But it doesn't take into account the cost of a nutritious diet. Exactly. So, in fact, in India, income poverty is around 18% or less, according to the official data. But food deprivation in this sense is 71%. As well as that, the environment is factored in as well. At the moment, what we have suggested as a group is to look at every country's per capita carbon emissions as a broader proxy for all of the environmental damage. Because, in fact, we find it strongly related. Countries with higher carbon footprint are also those where there's much greater damage being done to nature and the ecology in different ways, through deforestation and pollution and over-extraction of resources and all of that. But I would actually like that to also contain a distributional component. So I have suggested that in addition to the per capita emissions, we should look at the emissions of the 10 richest proportion, that is the 10% of the richest of the population, compared to the bottom 50%. We actually fortunately now do have data on this for many countries. And the reason that's important is because it's really the top 10% that is responsible for the bulk of the emissions in the whole world. And in some countries, they're responsible for more than 60-70% of emissions. Australia does badly on this measure, by the way. The group also recommends measuring time use. One aspect of life that we frequently don't consider properly is time poverty. Many people think that time poverty happens to, you know, high-flying professionals, those people who are rushing from meeting to meeting and making presentations on their laptops, on flights and things like that, you know, the big managers and CEOs. Yes. One part of it, but in fact, the most time-poor people in the world are poor women. So women, as I told you, already do a lot of unpaid work, but it's also that they have, when they do paid work as well, they are really stressed for time. Yeah. Again, in my own country, India, there are women who get to sleep four or five hours a day on a regular basis because they have so much work and they have so little time for their own leisure and certainly no time to engage in social life, as we call it, or relational activities. This is The Money on RN and the ABC Listen app. I'm Richard Aidey, and today you're hearing about GDP, what it doesn't do well, and what we could supplement it with. David Pilling from the Financial Times says one of the reasons it's problematic 
is that it doesn't keep up with technological change. What is happening right now is that lots of things that used to be part of the economy are now moving into the unmeasured economy. In a sense, the household economy, exactly the same as looking after grandma and making your bed, or as one economist pointed out to me, scratching your nose, which after all gives you some benefit, but we don't pick it up for obvious reasons in economic activity. But now let's take booking a seat on an aeroplane, booking a car to take you to the airport, checking in your own luggage, you know, printing out your boarding pass, printing out the luggage tag, heaving the luggage over to the belt and putting it on. Now, all that used to be part of the economy, but now it's not because it's been outsourced. It's been outsourced to the consumer Mm. and the consumer is now doing that for free. So in one sense, you can see how the economy, all else being equal, would shrink and that's all being moved into the non-economy. So I think then because of the way we measure things, what we're then kind of appears to be incumbent upon us to do is to invent more economic activity for which money changes hands to fill in that gap so that we can have more and more and more of this measured bit of the economy even though what's actually happened is that some of the bits of the economy that used to be measured have now sort of dropped out they've dropped out of gdp and into your time and that along with the time use issues raised by jayati gosh brings us to diane coyle The Cambridge economist is the author of nine books, including GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History, and last year's Cogs and Monsters. Her research is focused on how we spend our time. We're spending more on services and intangible things like the design of objects or after-sales service. That's just a bigger share of what we're willing to pay for in the economy. And all of those things involve spending time So we're either spending time consuming search or online streaming services or um, going to the cinema or going to get the haircut. And a lot of the things that we do at work are also about putting our creativity into activities. And when you think about it, we've all got the same time budget. We've all got 24 hours. We've got to spend it. You can't save any. And so one way to think about how to understand what's going on in the economy is to ask, well, How would we divide up how people are spending their time at work, at leisure, on not such pleasurable activities in the home like cleaning house? And is that a good lens on whether or not we're getting better off progressing as a society? This is something, though, that the pandemic has really blurred. You must be very aware of this because your job is a job that you can do a lot of at home and and many people have spent much of the last two and a half years working from home. Exactly. And it's clearly changed the allocations of the way people spend their time. The most obvious thing is that the, you know, half the workforce who are professional people and can work from home have switched their commuting time into other things, largely, it seems, into work time. So it suits their employer as well. But the flexibility of patterns that allows the blurring of the boundary between work in and for the home and work for the employer, um, all of that's changed. I guess the question I'm interested in is, is that a good thing or not? And if the working from home patterns stick, as they see, it seems they might, yeah, is I'm... that going to make us all happier or not? Okay, Diane. So how would you go about measuring it? A number of economies, a number of countries have what are called time use surveys. And that involves people uh, filling out, usually online, a diary of how they spend their day and 
you can check your main activity and then a secondary one. So if you're doing the ironing and watching TV, you can decide which of those is the main thing and which the secondary one. And some of these questionnaires have now been updated to incorporate all the digital activities. We're spending a huge amount of time online. For the UK, it, the average is over a day a week. Um, so for some people, it's obviously much more than that. And um, so we need to track those activities as well. And, you know, is it doing your online banking? Is it watching streaming services? Is it doing search activities? Is it doing work emails? So we're starting to get these very rich data sets about how people are spending their time. I mean, not so many countries do this and they're not as regular as one might like, but that's the kind of data that we're going to need. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? It's not just that I spend this much time doing X and that much doing Y. It's ascribing a value to me for those different activities. Well, that's the tricky bit because unlike going out and buying a cinema ticket or a, a bag of apples, there's no market price. So we've got to think of how to value the way people spend their time. And the reason for that is is that we want to make comparisons across individuals or across countries or think about what's happening to different groups in the population. And you can do that either by thinking about what wages would they earn if they were doing that uh, as a paid activity. You can ask people uh, through surveys to state the value they assign to it. So one way is to do these monetary measures. Another alternative is to ask people to kind of rate psychologically what amount of enjoyment they get out of the different activities. So there are two alternative approaches there. Economists like the monetary one because it's a sort of familiar measuring rod of what's going on in the economy. And just to be clear, for each of us, there's work for which you're paid. There's also the productive work for the home, which uh, are much more done by women than men. So doing the washing, preparing food. There's leisure time. And all of these have a different value to us. Yes. So there's the enjoyment value. And that varies, obviously, among people. Some people might enjoy doing the ironing. And I hate it so much, I never pick up an iron from one end of the year to the next. Um, And uh, so you can think about it in that way. Or you can think about it in how much would they get paid to do that in the market? Or what's their salary doing other things that they might do? So you can think of of those kinds of measures as well. Um, But, you know, there's intrinsic enjoyment in jobs like being a professor or being a creative artistic person or a gardener who enjoys being out in in nature. So one of the things to think about is factoring in that intrinsic enjoyment as well. And um, that goes for activities in the home also. What would be the value for policymakers of knowing more about what we're doing with our time? It speaks to the sense many people have that the measurements through GDP, you know, it goes up 0.2% this quarter and down 0.3% next, don't really capture what we think is going on in the quality of our lives. There's a movement, it's called Beyond GDP, and there are lots of different initiatives to try to understand better how society is progressing or not. And I think many people have a sense that we've had the financial crisis, we've had the pandemic, we've got the inflation shock going on now, that the system that we have isn't working very well. And maybe using different kinds of lenses, including looking at how people spend their time and how much they enjoy their days is is a good way to think about a better way of measuring progress. Because after all, you don't get out of bed saying, what am I going to buy today? You, you ask, what am I going to do today? It's all about how we spend our time in our limited number of days on earth. That, I think, leads to the best known of the alternatives or additions to GDP, 
well-being. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has mentioned it, and New Zealand already has a well-being budget. But what is it? Catherine Trebek is a strategic advisor for the Centre for Policy Development. Catherine, what are we talking about here? So when I talk about well-being, I really mean quality of life across the board. So things that really shape people's opportunity, their connections with each other and, and with land, and also their agency, you know, so their potential to impact things. So all sorts of different things would come into that. Things like shelter, health, quality of jobs, are they paying enough? Do they have dignity, meaning and purpose, relationships, safety, a whole suite of different information. And understanding also how they link together, how they flow on to each other. So, for example, if you're you know, if you've got a country that's doing well on its educational front, that's going to yield different outcomes in terms of quality of jobs, perhaps also in terms of crime figures and safety and also poverty and so on. So yeah. understanding those interlinkages and ripple effects and flow on benefits if we can be clever about things. So if we put aside what it's measuring, what does a good wellbeing measure need to have? So it's got to be about outcomes. You know, what are the results for communities? You know, how are people faring? Not just tallying up how much we're spending. So it's got to be about outcomes rather than inputs. We also need to, as statisticians would say, disaggregate it. So not just be subject to the tyranny of averages and just have, say, for example, a per capita measure which averages out how the rich are faring and how, you know, how the poorest folks are doing. We need to really understand that diversity, but also different places in Australia, men and women, for example, different demographics. So we need to sort of, again, look under the bonnet and understand how different parts of Australia are faring. It also needs to be timely and needs to come out regularly enough that it can keep the conversation going and we can understand changes uh, over months or years. And it also needs to be, I'd say, based on and really come from conversations and dialogue with communities. It can't just be a couple of, say, public servants, incredible and smart though they are, sitting in a room and saying, this is what our our measure needs to be about. It needs to really be based on a conversation with Australians. It's not enough for wellbeing or indeed any other measure just to be captured. You've got to do something with it. This needs to be hardwired into government, so it needs to be backed by legislation, reporting, accountability mechanisms, but also softwired as well if this is about different ways of doing government. So perhaps cross-departmental teams, maybe diagonal budgeting, you know, get pooled budgets where you can understand the different impacts across different departmentals, different government subject areas. And All sorts of different countries are really experimenting with different ways to put this agenda into practice. None of them have got it perfect, but we do see countries such as Wales with a future generations commissioner whose job it is is to scrutinise, say, draft budget documents to really make sure they align with the needs of Welsh people now and in the future and around the world. Uh, You've got New Zealand with its wellbeing budget. And one of the most exciting aspects of that, I think, is that it really encourages departments not to submit budget bids just on their own, but to team up and collaborate and understand those interlinkages between their respective areas of work. It's actually, it it could amount to a radical retooling of of public service and, 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 and wider government, really. Do you know, not radical in the sense of a wild overhaul, but more certainly about updating and ensuring that the processes of government and ways of working and information that government uses are suitable for the realities of, of our time. So, yes, this is going to require new ways of working together within government, elevating 
wider suite of priorities rather than those, say, traditional narrow economic measures that, you know, have their place, but they certainly don't give us a full picture of, of how our communities and our environments faring. How much of it is going to be about empowering communities so it's not just a top-down thing? Do you know, Richard, it can't be a top-down thing. This has to be about putting communities and their needs and their voices at the forefront of what sort of priorities are important for governments and businesses also to, to focus on. This has to be about designing our economic systems and government processes in service of that in ways that are fit for what communities here and, to be honest, around the world really need in this day and age. So it can't just be a top-down thing. This also has to be about shifting dialogue, about shifting power balances, who is around the table when these decisions get taken. It also has to surely nail down accountability because politicians are very adept at not taking the blame for things going wrong and taking the credit when things go right, even if they haven't had a lot to do with it. It's got to make the people, politicians and indeed others, responsible for delivery. Entirely. And one of the challenges, I think, if we're honest with this, is that some of these impacts are going to take time to bring about and their benefits may be many years in in advance. And I often say that politicians need to govern as if they mean to stay, not just focus on on the three-year term that we have here. But accountability is a vital aspect of this. And, And the Welsh Future Generations Commissioner that I mentioned earlier is a really good example of embedding that in government processes. And I think it'd be fantastic to see that in Australia. But I think you and your colleagues in the media have a role in this as well. What sort of questions will you be asking the Treasurer the day after he brings down the budget, for example? You know, will you be asking around what's he's going to do for GDP per capita or what's he's going to do for the number of people who are sleeping rough on our streets or for the health of our ecosystems or for young people who are scared for their future? Those sorts of questions we need to really bring into prominence if we're going to get that far, we have to agree what to measure. The metrics Jaiti Ghosh is talking about, a labour market indicator, how much of the population can afford a nutritious diet, carbon emissions per capita and time use, they're all part of well-being in a way, and each could end up on a dashboard. Diane Coyle. There are lots of dashboards already, and I think the challenge for economists and the people who collect the statistics is to think about what's going to be a kind of standard that lots of organisations and countries will want to use so that we can keep this this comparability, this sense of benchmarking ourselves over time or against other countries. And that's the bit that we don't have yet. There's lots of exploratory work going on, lots of ideas around. And maybe a dashboard is going to be the right answer. I think it is. You know, you look at your car dashboard, it's not just a speedometer, you've got some other indicators too, we can cope with that. But what what are those items in the dashboard going to be? Um, I think that's still an open question. I don't think inertia is the right word, but at the moment we do have something that we can all agree on, which is GDP, which we've used for decades. It's sort of getting past that, well, we've got this thing that we can all use and compare to thinking, well, there are better measures that we all have to agree on. I think you've put your finger on it. You know, it is like we all drive on the left-hand side of the road or the right-hand side of the road, and there may be many good arguments for switching sides, but you're not going to do it by yourself. There has to be enough agreement and a decision to switch. The statistics that we have for GDP, that's the United Nations organised set of definitions. Countries are all supposed to do it the same. So making that kind of technical switch, if you like, is is going to require coordination. Jayati Ghosh is crossing her fingers. 
We are hoping that the UN, it has to go through the Economic and Social Council and then through the UN General Assembly. But if the UN adopts this, then it would mean that the statistical system requires every country to collect this data and provide it on at least an annual basis. That's huge. Of course, the UN would have to assist you know, provide technical assistance, financial assistance to countries that don't know how or cannot afford to collect these data, but it can be done. In fact, all of these indicators are actually easier to collect and involve less crazy assumptions than GDP does. Thanks to all of my guests today. And thanks also to The Money's producer, Kate McDonald, and our sound engineer, Amrita de Bittencourt. I'm Richard Aidy. I'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.